This episode of Is This Working is brought to you by Moo. Moo is the place to go to easily design and print quality business cards, postcards, and stickers. Welcome to Is This Working, a podcast about the messy parts of work. With me, Anna Cogirado. And me, Tiffany Philippou. Today, we're talking about burnout. Yes, we are. With Anne Helen Peterson. Anne is a senior culture writer at BuzzFeed who wrote that viral article about burnout and is now writing a book called Can't Even How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, which is out in September. Um, so much of what Anne wrote in her BuzzFeed article was about the impact of a massive global financial recession on the millennial generation and on their work, which just feels so relevant right now. And it almost feels like a foreshadowing of what's to come um, for, well, A, for continuing for the current generation, but also for future generations. So... With all of that in mind, Anne felt like one of the best placed people to help us unpack some of the work issues that many of us are facing right now. It's a really great conversation and I've taken a lot from it and I'm really excited we're sharing it with you all today. Particularly, there's a lot of relevant discussion around how the pandemic has really exposed a lot of the problems that we have with regards to our attitude to work and how we think about work. And let's get on with the show. On with the show. Hi, Anne. Welcome Hi. to the show. Thank you so much for being here with us. Um, of course. We talk a lot on this podcast about all of the messy parts of work. And we just, given the fact that you're writing the book on millennial burnout, we just really felt that you're probably one of the best placed people to help us unpack some of the work issues facing us right now and um, facing us kind of issues that were already facing us, but have been even more brought to the fore as a result of this pandemic. Um, And you know what, when I was scheduling this call with you um, and we had time zones to contend with, I have to say that I really love the fact that you were, you told me that you were on mountain time, which I know obviously is a time zone. Um, but (laughs) it just, it just really, the concept of mountain time just really warms my soul. I mean, we have Greenwich Meridian time, which just is not in, in no way as, um, as kind of nice sounding, but anyway, it was also, um, a reminder to me that you do not live in a media metropolis and you live in Montana. Um, Mm -hmm. I'd really love to hear from you how that has affected your work and your relationship with what you do, especially as someone who does a job that is so often expected to be done in a city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I convinced BuzzFeed to allow me to move to Montana after the 2016 election. Basically, in the United States, there was a big like, how did we miss everything happening in the rest of the country. So I was able to kind of exploit that moment to be like, well, let's try this at least till the midterms and then just kind of stayed because, and I knew this wasn't going to be a problem. I think a, uh, a lot of times companies are worried that when people work from home, that they're not going to be doing the work that they're supposed to be doing. They're going to be lazy, that, that your productivity is going to go down, you know, any number of things. But I think for myself and a lot of millennials, there's, there, I, I don't know how not to try to be productive. Um, that was really ingrained in me while I was an academic that like, you know, you need to turn all hours into productive hours in some capacity. So just because I was working from home wouldn't actually change my strategy towards work. If anything, I would do more work because I wouldn't be getting interrupted by like just, you know, the, the everyday office conversations that that are so important in some ways and also take up a lot of time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I moved out here. My partner is also a journalist. He was able to make that case as well. And the big change really was that like we could just work more <laughs> because we weren't commuting in, you know, 45 minutes each way on the subway. 
And I think we both really struggled our first year here with reconciling the fact that we should be working less, right? That we should have more hours that are ours alone. But we both, because we wanted to prove that we could work from home, found ourselves working more, trying to prove ourselves just generally. And also just not having that boundary of like, I'm getting in the car or I'm getting on the subway and going from the workplace to the home place, right? For some people, that is a really distinct boundary. For me, that has never been the case. (laughs) Uh, And it wasn't the case when I moved back. So it has really taken the last three years to try to figure out how to actually enjoy the fact that I'm not in an urban place in an office every day taking the subway, that I do have more of that flexibility. I think that that idea of boundaries is something that probably resonates with a lot of people right now. And the distinction between the physical space, suddenly, you know, the home suddenly becoming the place where you work and you live is something that basically everyone around the world is now currently grappling with. Um, How have you managed to navigate that boundary? You said it's been a bit of a journey over the last three years. What, What are some of the things that you've learned? And I do preface all of this with acknowledging that working from home is distinct from working in a pandemic, but nonetheless, how are, how are the, some, some of those ways that you've dealt with that? Yeah, I think that I'm still really bad at it. You know, I am talking to you right now from my dining room table which is my workspace. And I don't, you know, have a delineated space that is just mine. Like my partner has an office that he sometimes uses exclusively for work. Uh, He's actually down there recording a podcast right now (laughs) as we're recording a podcast up here. Uh, But I, I have to, I'm still really bad at it. I think that I will make dinner and then like, or prep dinner, like get everything ready for dinner and then like pour a glass of wine and sit down and like look at the internet, which is part of my job, right? Part of it too is that as a journalist, as a cultural critic, everything is my job. You know, I was watching a TV show last night. That's part of my job. Like I'm always consuming and always thinking and like being on Twitter is also, although maybe not explicitly, implicitly part of my job. So there is that leakage that goes in all directions. And so I think, you know, for me, the real thing, the only thing that really makes me stop doing some component of my job is to go outside. And so whether that's running or I have two dogs, like I spend a lot of time on trails around here that are like, I can just walk out my door and get to these trails. That is the real privilege of living in a place like Montana, which is very rural and, and super outdoors focused is that I can flip that switch and go outside and really physically separate myself from all of these spheres of work. But when I'm in the home, it's, I've kind of stopped trying to feel bad about like that inability and instead tried to, to manage it in a different way, I guess is, is the right answer to that. One of the things we talk about on the podcast is about how we don't believe in work-life balance as a concept. (laughs) Yes. And what you've described is basically that where, especially our types of jobs, like what we read and what we engage with, um, you know, seeps into all manners of our life. And as you say, am I right in saying you've almost said that almost to acknowledge that fact has almost freed you of trying to separate the two things? Yeah, totally. And, you know, some people do have jobs where like they get in the car and they're like, I'm not thinking about my job. Or I know people who don't talk about their jobs with their partner. And that to me, that's just a different sort of relationship. I think that works really well for some people. But like my partner and I are both journalists and we talk about our work all the time. Like some of our best times together is we'll go on a long walk with the dogs and we'll like talk through different things that are going on with our jobs in a way that like feels more like therapy and feels very generative. Um, But it's still talking about our jobs. And I think part of that too, and this is in some ways a a millennial thing, but I, other generations have it as well, but I think it is incredibly millennial is my identity is just so wrapped up in my job. You know, that is, that is who I am. That is the things that I'm thinking about all the time. So 
to me, I'm like, well, of course I'm going to be thinking about these things. Of course I'm going to be spending more time on that part of my life because it's, you know, a huge part of who I am. And I'm lucky that I feel very rewarded in that job. Like I feel like it is something that, that gives me peace and satisfaction and like a purpose in the world and all those sorts of altruistic things. But at the same time, I don't think that has to be the standard, right? So people like us who, you know, for a living talk about work or do this, like I have to understand over and over again that the way that I have chosen to lead my life, like that isn't the only way that that mapping of my occupation onto my identity, that doesn't have to be the only way. And if I talk about it in a way that says that it should be the standard bearer or that other people should figure out how to find a job that makes them feel like that, people get their sense of self from all sorts of different other areas in their life. Um, it's just that work has become that area for me. Um, you, you know, in mentioning the fact that, um, when you, you and your partner go on these walks and you kind of have these sort of work therapy type conversations and the fact that you've just brought up work as part of your identity to ask a somewhat kind of, um, pop psychology question here, how do you kind of feel about your career? How do you, how do you feel about the fact that you have, that such a large part of your identity is based on your work and on your job? I think, you know, it's an interesting reevaluative moment, right? Because like the, a lot of the security that I felt like I had gradually gained over the last five or so years is called into question. But I, um, I think because I had a full-time staff position where I felt like I was being paid for my value. And, you know, I had these other places where I was um, able to, to find, you know, how do I say this? Uh, I had these other parts of my life where I was writing books, right? Or going to do speaking things that, that added to that kind of cornucopia of identity and, and fulfillment in my job. I felt like I was on the way towards something that this is the thing about burnout is you never feel like you arrive at that place. And at some point you just get exhausted because the place that you feel like you're going just seems to be the same distance away at all times. Um, but at the same time, I think that I, I being in a more secure place makes that feeling feel less like drowning. Whereas when you're not paid full time, when you don't have health insurance, when you don't have any of those safety nets, that make it so that you feel like you can experiment or be bold or take risks that um, those are the moments when you feel bad or lost or feel like giving up. And would you say that your relationship with your work and your job has changed over the years? Um, and the more you've worked on how we work as well, has that changed a lot of your own relationship with your work, would you say? Yeah, you know, I, I talk about this in my original piece about burnout, but I just, I really didn't think that burnout was something that I had any familiarity with. I think that I had just powered through so much in my life in terms of my academic career and then my post-academic career, my early years in journalism. It was just like, here is the work that needs to be done how can I divide it up in a way that makes it manageable? How can I divide up all components of my life so that it like, okay, here, here's how I can spend my Saturday to do that work. And here's how I can spend that Sunday. That when I did arrive at it, it felt so alien. And I just, I didn't recognize what was happening to me. And, you know, my manager, my partner, everyone was like, maybe you're a little burnt out. And I was like, that is, that's impossible. Like I've just, you know, I figured out how to, how to play this game. And I'm sure that there were moments in, in my past history where I was experiencing some component of burnout, but it was just never as severe. And I think that, you know, the real power in naming it was that I was able to step back and see the behaviors that were contributing to it, right? So if I go through life thinking nothing's wrong, this is just how life is, right? Then you can't understand 
what are the things that are making you feel the way that you feel, act the way that you act, interact with others the way that you interact with others. And so I can now, I can be like, oh, well, that's a super burnout behavior what I just did, right? It doesn't have to be, I'm a horrible person because I'm acting this way. Like, I'm really into this dumb kind of candy crush style game right now. And I keep playing it at night when I want to be reading a book. Like, I'm like, I actually want to be doing something that I love to do, like read a novel. But I keep playing this game. And I know that part of it is that I am part of my brain really wants to feel nothing, wants to have that nothingness of playing this dumb game. And I can see that for what it is. I can be like, yeah, it's kind of dumb that I'm playing that. But at the same time, I don't have to feel shame. I don't have to feel regret. I can just be like, this is a moment in my life where I don't feel capable of engaging with a novel the way that I would like to. And I can see it for what it is. It, it's so, um, I find it so interesting that you bring that up because I have a similar thing with, um, YouTube videos and mm-hmm. watching makeup videos on YouTube, people putting their make, you know, makeup tutorials on YouTube, yeah. um, which I, which I watch solely for the kind of escapism of that, not to actually learn a makeup technique. Right. And it, right. is de- it is definitely about escapism and kind of just like numbing your brain and turning it off. And yet there is this voice at the back of my head that says, no, no, you should be reading a book. Or at least if you're going to be watching something on YouTube, make it a TED talk or, (laughs) you know, do something quote unquote more productive or of of more value. And, um, it's, it's this, it's this thing that I think has a lot to do with our inability to accept the importance of rest and to accept the fact that our bodies do sometimes need they, you, you know, you need to just relax, properly relax. And that means actually switching your brain off and playing Candy Crush or Animal Crossing or watching makeup videos on YouTube or whatever it might be. And yet there is so much guilt attached to that. Um, and, and how do you kind of, how have you found in sort of your writing you've done, how do you have, how have you found that that relates to burnout and kind of, um, what is the relationship between that of that sort of feeling of, I must always be, I must always be productive. I must always be on. It's so huge. And I think that we find ourselves watching these YouTube videos or playing Candy Crush or doing things that we don't actually want to be doing. We're not really choosing our choice because we can't find, we can't find actual rest. We feel even more guilty about the actual rest, right? But we also don't want to be doing something that's actually, quote unquote, productive. So like watching the TED Talk, you're like, there's nothing I want to do less right now than watch a TED Talk. (laughs) Um, And so so what you do is you find this liminal space, this halfway space that is neither here nor there. So it's not actually that restful or regenerative. Right. Um, And it's not actually that edifying either. Uh, like this Candy Crush style style game that I've been playing, it's not that challenging. It's not like making me a more creative thinker in any any way. Uh, So sometimes I'm frustrated that I can't actually just give myself the real rest, right? I can't just look out the window. I can't even just nap, right? Like think about how much time like during the middle of the day for me, like when I work from home, so I'm able to do this, but during the middle of the day when you're like, I'm so tired right now, I'm just kind of endlessly scrolling Twitter. Really what I should do is take a nap for an hour. But I would feel so bad about that lost productive hour. And it's really difficult, I think, to conceive of the fact that by not working for that hour, you will actually be more productive in those hours afterwards, right? So you'll do the same amount of work. You'll just feel better. <laughs> but again, you know, I, I, before the pandemic, I was working on this feature that I don't know, it might not ever see the light of day, but it was about the four day work week and how people, when they're actually given a four day work week and they're said, they're told, if you are as productive as you would be in five days and you do it in four days, then you can have that fifth day off. And people, like there are all these studies about how people actually do this. It's very, um, depends on what type of labor you're doing, of course. But like 
people will uh, be more productive, be more generative if they can have that three-day rest. But it's so difficult for people to do, like get their heads around that that idea, right? That less work is sometimes more work. I, I'm thinking about how I took my last nap on on Friday, maybe. <laughs> it's <laughs> very good napping um well I guess I'm qu- I, I guess I'm lucky in the sense that we get to have conversations like this and so that does help me alleviate the, the guilt of when I do need to just stop because I cannot express how much I used to be um on the dark side I used to work in startups in fact so um, <laughs> um so that working culture is quite intense but um yeah now we um and, and and I think we talk on the show a lot about how the key to productivity, as you were just saying, is about having rest and actual rest rather than that sort of weird fake halfway house. Um, but we actually did an episode as well, which was specifically about burnout, which was inspired by your piece. And um, we actually explored whether work could actually almost be a cure for burnout and how maybe changing our relationship with our work and reframing that could actually help um, the situation. And one of the things we pulled out as well was, and please um, explain this if I've got this wrong, but a lot of burnout as was to do with almost disengagement or um, feeling let down by your work. So um, yeah, let me know what you think about that and, and um, whether we're kind of on the right track by saying that perhaps work could actually help cure burnout. Yeah, I think it all depends on what the work is giving back to you, right? So I think burnout often happens when there's a mismatch in how much effort you're putting in and how much effort they're giving back to you. And that can be anyone... That can be like people on your team, that can be managers, that can be in terms of how much you're getting paid um, or how much like people voice their appreciation or you see meaningful change in the world around you because of that work. So when people are giving so much of themselves and they feel like they're not getting any of that back, either because like other people on your team are kind of worthless or uh, you just are like woefully underpaid and like feel like you're not appreciated in any way, or like you feel like you keep doing all of this work and nothing is changing. You know, and that I often think of things like people who work in social services and that sort of thing that like there's this massive systemic problem and you feel like you are working so hard and it just doesn't seem to be doing anything. Um, Oftentimes those are the feelings when it, like you feel like you're on a treadmill and you keep running and running and you just keep also running into a wall. And that is so generative of burnout. But <laughs> inversely, if you do feel like you're getting all of those things, if you find a job that is that right fit, right, where you have managers that like value you and, and voice how valued you are, and you feel like the other people on your team are on the same wavelength in terms of collaboration and communication, like all of that can be a really exciting way to, to pull you out of burnout. But oftentimes I think that actually does mean changing jobs, right? Um, for people, if you found yourself in that rut, it's really difficult to get out of the way that people are thinking about you and your role in, in your workplace, or it's really difficult to get a raise too, especially just in this moment, particularly. Um, but then I also think too, is that like, if, if work, sometimes the only way to get out of burnout is to stop thinking of work in a particular way, right? So if you completely change your expectations for what work can give you, and I've seen this with a lot of academics who felt so burnt out by how much they were giving to their academic pursuits and how little they were getting back. And then they changed to like a very different sort of job where the expectations were like, if you do well in this job, you will get a raise every year, right? Which is something that's foreign to a lot of academics. <laughs> or there will be um, clear clear measures of your success, which again is something that's pretty foreign. Or even just like you will show up at nine and you will leave at five and that will be the limits of your day. And there's something incredibly gratifying about that as well. 
But like you said, I think it has to, it has everything to do with a match between expectations and what you are receiving. And also with just like uh, being in a non-toxic job situation. And sometimes the situation is so toxic, there's just nothing you can do to change it. And realizing, okay, if that's my situation, either I'm going to like withdraw myself emotionally from it, or I'm going to actually withdraw from that job in order to not feel that way about it anymore. Do you think that we're finally getting to a point where we are starting to question and maybe even redefine what it actually means to be successful, um, especially for millennials and and probably even especially now in this current moment? Yeah. I, I mean, all of this is so shaded by what's happening with the pandemic, right? Because I think that the impossibility of doing it all, right? Or of something like work-life balance, like it's just being revealed to be the fiction that it is. <laughs> it's just a construct that keeps us hurtling towards, you know, towards burnout. Uh, and I think that for me personally, there was this, this compulsion to try to be doing all the things all the time. Right. So like succeeding in my job, but also really like excelling as a partner and as a, a speaker who went to you know college campuses and was traveling all the time and like always going to interesting places and um, exercising and buying interesting clothes that made me look cool. You know, I mean, just everything that like everyone, especially women, are thinking about all the time and like everyone else in the world, my circle of life has just like completely uh, has become so much smaller. And that makes me think about things like, well, I don't need any more new clothes or why would I blow dry my hair today? <laughs> or it doesn't matter. You know, I was, I was devoting so much time towards planning future things and really orienting my life towards thinking What's the next thing I'm going to do? How am I going to plan this thing six months from now so that when I get there, there'll be something that I'm doing. But like I have to live much more in the present. And even with with work stuff too, like what is the thing that I need to do to feel okay today? Right? And that to me is a profound reorientation around like the self and, and the intimate relationships that matter to you most. And so is it going to actually change how we think as a society? I wish that um, I wish that this pandemic and the isolation that it has generated wasn't also accompanied by this massive financial crisis, right? Because I think if if we emerged from this and everyone still felt fairly economically stable or somewhat economically stable, then yes, you could be like, okay, I have the freedom to start to reorient some of my life and some of my, my work habits and that sort of thing. But I think everyone is so precarious in their economic situations right now that any sort of um, profound work philosophies feel like they need to be put on hold. So this is the reason why this four-day work week feature that I've been working on is on hold, right? It feels it feels silly right now to be thinking about how can we encourage people to work less, like how to work for only four days, when right now people are like, how can I find a job? How can I pay my rent? It's um, I'm really glad you've kind of brought up this sort of the scarcity issue and how and how even when we are in a place where maybe philosophically we've had all of these amazing revelations and um, during this time of isolation, but if we're operating from a place of scarcity, financial scarcity, um, it becomes very, very difficult to actually put any of that into action. And it did make me think about how, um, you know, I graduated right smack bang into the middle of the 2008 financial recession, as did, and, you know, 
the millennial generation is basically defined by people who either graduated into or just before or just after that crisis. And we've now kind of reached the, and we already, we already know the damaging impact that has had on wage losses and job stagnation and all of that stuff, like all of that data, we already know, but we're now barreling towards another recession. And Right as right as our generation is at a point where we should be hitting our, you know, really hitting our stride with our careers. Um, what you know, I mean, obviously this is a huge question, but what do you think all of these sort of huge knockbacks is going to have on people and on how they think about their work and how um, and how they kind of push forward? It just it really feels sort of like uh, one step forward and three massive steps back for people who are. (laughs) Well, and I think that the thing that, you know, I heard talking with other millennials about what's happened is that during the supposed, you know, good times of the last decade, like the recovery basically, which to be clear was really not a recovery for everyone. Like there was still so many people who really felt like they were just making ends meet especially here in the United States, just like massive student debt payments and like huge increases in rent and the the inability to um, cover childcare costs or deal with the cost of modern life. Um, But at the same time, like as things were supposedly going so well, I really was just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And is that an American phrase? Um, no, I mean, I, th- I think it's, I mean, I definitely, uh, well, also we both and I both- in America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, It means that it, it, it's understand. like, you're just waiting for the, I was just going to say shit to hit the fan, which is also like a colloquialism. Yep. Um, you're we're waiting, allowed to, we're allowed to on this show. So it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, waiting it's, to hit shit to it's like, it's just like, you're waiting for everything to go bad again. Right. Yeah. And I think that you know, I'm an old millennial. So I, when I graduated from college in 2003, the job market was still bad because of the dot-com boom and bust. So I had that. And then, and also recovering from 9-11, like, which was, you know, uh, caused an economic calamity and also like just a social hangover. And I graduated into the Iraq war. Uh, And then while I was in grad school, 2008 and the the global economic downturn, which had ramifications far beyond that, like everyone experienced that as well. So for me, it's just like, oh, things are bad and get a little bit better. Things are bad and get a little bit better. Things are bad and get a little bit better. But if they never get, if you never truly recover, right? Like when we talk about the economic recovery from the recession, who actually recovered? Like some people recovered their retirement savings. But if you didn't have any retirement savings in the first place, <laughs> then what did you recover? Um, or if you never had enough to you know, buy a house, then you're not like you're still worrying about how am I going to pay rent for the rest of my life? Or the idea that I think a lot of millennials have internalized is like, I guess I'm just going to have to work until I die. Like work is the rest of my life. <laughs> and you know, that, that is something that people in the modern world, like until very recently, that was, you know, you worked until your body gave out. Uh, and we're just returning to that. And I, and I think what, maybe what we're experiencing, millennials in particular, but also Gen Z as they like are getting ready to enter into adulthood, is this feeling that like we are taking these steps back. Right. Like our life expectancy and our and our uh, wealth expectancy is going down for the after like years of, you know, we are expected to be better off than our parents and to live longer than our parents. That is finally reversing the progress. And if you think about it, like the history of civilization is this like, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. You have these moments of of regression. And it's just, it's it's difficult to grapple with the fact that like our prime adult years are during one of these moments of regression. So in your latest newsletter, which we will put the link to in the show notes for anyone who wants to read it, um, you wrote that writing 
this from the middle of the pandemic, it's become clear that COVID-19 is the great clarifier. It clarifies what and who in your life matters, what things are needs, what are wants, who's thinking of others, who is thinking only of themselves. It's clarified that the workers dubbed essential are in truth treated as expendable and it has made decades of systematic racism and resultant vulnerability to the disease indelible. For us, that's really crystallized the way this pandemic's really highlighted how broken work is on a very fundamental and structural level. Can you tell us a bit more about your thoughts around that? Part of it is this this compulsion towards productivity is really made visible uh, in a way that makes it look ridiculous, right? Like the early weeks of the pandemic, there were these tweets going around about like, you know, like here's what these great artists when they were in seclusion because of like the plague, here's what they wrote or here's what they generated. And, you know, Forgetting the part that like those were men who didn't have familial obligations, who also like didn't have the internet to distract them. Uh, Like the thing, the first thing that people think about, the first idea that people begin circulating when like society as we know it is in question, right? And like all of these people are dying and like the, the very foundations of how we go about in the world are being rattled the first thing people think about is what can I generate, <laughs> right? Like what can I, how can I take this extra time and like turn it into something valuable instead of actually just like sitting with your thoughts and with your feelings and like feeling that, right? Like we are so scared of actually feeling our feelings and spending any time in our own minds that the compulsion becomes like, I'm going to, you know, learn how to knit and like everyone break bread and like all of these different things that actually take us away from the real fear that is, you know, undergirding this moment. Um, So there's that part of it, right? It's just like, how can I be more productive? Even though everything in life is telling me not to be productive, like my body is saying, you are terrified. Stop right? Like stop moving. (laughs) Um, We are still trying to figure out how we can somehow like weave something out of the wreckage of all of this fear and panic and, um, and trepidation. And then the other thing just with work generally, you know, I am on a, a tech stream with all of my friends who are trying to manage working from home right now. And the expectations Again, it just clarifies, like, here's what we expect of mothers in this pandemic. Here's what we expect of anyone to be able to do, to be able to communicate, to be able to, like, function in these various ways, even when we have, again, like, fundamentally shaken the way that we do work. Somehow you're supposed to, like, conduct all of these meetings and have all of this communication and, like, be in constant contact with everyone all the time even while you're doing all of these other things, even while you're trying to experience what's happening around you. Like, even if you, you know, someone in your life is an essential worker who's leaving the house every day and you're terrified of what's happening to them, there are no stop gaps to kind of deal with that. Like there is no, I feel like there is very little compassion in the way that we have organized work. And that has become so amplified and how people are running up against this, like, oh, I don't have any sick time or, oh, like, what do I do when there's no one to take care of this kid? Like, how are my managers reacting to me? I've heard of so many examples of managers who don't have kids or who are not personally taking care of their kids who are mad that like a kid appears in the Zoom call. They're like, that's a distraction, right? But then there are also lots of cases of people who are dealing with that themselves who are more compassionate, more generous, more like understanding of like, yeah, there's going to be like little voices on the call all the time. And here's how I can, instead of making people feel really stressed out and bad and anxious about it, just establish that that is a new norm. Um, but yeah, in general, like, I, I think there's a lot of things about society that are pretty broken and that we've just kind of kept going with because that's the way it is. And it feels very difficult to actually make any substantial changes. And 
as I said in the the um, newsletter, like this is just making it impossible to actually ignore those things. Um, on that point about compassion in the workplace, I my kind of ideal and my hope is that we're going to see a lot more empathy at work because managers have been quite literally brought into your physical home and right. they have to see they they have to see what you deal with um i think in reality unfortunately there's just going to be a much wider gulf i think there will be some managers who've com- who've had who finally can have seen and able to empathize and able to kind of understand and be more compassionate and then there at the other end, there are the managers who, um, probably because of the pressures they themselves are under, I've had conversations with people who are managers who, um, you know, think kind of like keep coming up sort of, oh, I just, I just don't understand why they can't work all the time because what else are they doing? And, right. um, you know, why isn't everyone kind of, um, like pitching in as hard as I am. And, and I do think that comes from a place of, fear on their part that they're under enormous pressure and this historic idea of the lead, you know, the leader needs to be the fearless leader who should never show what's going on behind the scenes, who should never let on that actually their boss or, you know, their, the shareholders or whoever it is, is putting the pressure on them. Um, so I do worry that the chasm is just going to be greater. Um, but hopefully at the sort of at one end, that sort of empathy will come in more. Um, and kind of in all of that and, and really something that I've really kind of have seen in your, in your work for a while now, but also really has come out um, in the conversations we've been having now is so much of what we're talking about really deals with shame, whether explicitly or implicitly. Um, This isn't, this isn't so much about work, but you just, you, you wrote a piece quite literally about shaming people online and um, um, during the pandemic. Um, But it's also something that gets you talk about a lot in relation to burnout, and we've we've been talking about shame a bit on this um, in this conversation. Um, Do you think that many of us carry a lot of shame about our work and our jobs and our careers, um, and kind of, or maybe sort of what our expectations were about what what we should have what what we should have amounted to and where we are now? Yeah, for sure. I think there is a religious component of our relationship to work. Um, specifically in, in Western societies. And I think that there's this understanding that somehow what you're doing for many people and for many millennials is a calling, right? And so if you are not living up to the expectations that you have set for yourself or that others have set for you, you are failing not just on the, the level of like the job, but also on a moral level. Like you are a bad person in some capacity because of whatever um, failure you have to be as productive of a person um, in your job and in your life as possible. And I think what that ends up doing is like imprinting all of this shame on people who, for whatever reason, and there are so many reasons why for a given period in time or, or maybe your entire life, you might not be able to be as productive as ideal of a laborer as other people, you know, physical disability, emotional disability, um, like different uh, things that you have to do in your life, like caretaking responsibilities for elders or siblings or, or kids. Like there's just so many things, but what we do instead of like looking at this larger system that is, is maybe broken and, and, and messed up and makes us feel these bad things all the time, Instead of being like, oh, that's the problem, we internalize that shame and then we also map it onto other people, right? So like when I see someone who I like is not working as hard as I am, then my immediate feeling is like that person is lazy and that person is a bad person in some way, right? Like those are some of the the internal thought processes that, that we end up extending to people who... Uh, we don't maybe know anything about their lives or why they're acting the way that they're acting. But again, that just makes everyone feel bad, right? Like you feel bad as a person, you feel that shame. And then you are also like extending that to other people and making them feel bad. Like no one feels good. So maybe that's, maybe that there's something wrong with that scenario. But again, it takes a lot to dramatically reconsider how we conceive of being a good laborer in this society. 
Yeah, I, I think going back to the pandemic, I think it's really exposing how that hard work narrative is a bit of a lie. So, so many people, and and the religious example is perfect because um, people think if I work hard, I'm a good person. And people often justify, say, having a huge salary or having the ability to buy a house, whatever it might be, with I work hard or oh, my parents worked hard, so they bought me X opportunity. And once you start hearing it, I can't unhear it. And even people who I think are actually very thoughtful people still genuinely believe that they are where they are because they work hard. And I believe that everyone works hard in some shape or form. And I also think though that the pandemic is showing that there's jobs in our society which are far more valuable than a lot of these people who kind of like work hard in inverted commas and what it's really exposing that flaw in the fact that the hard work narrative isn't quite right and actually it's all about value and contribution and what you give back and I think that's being really exposed right now um yeah no absolutely <laughs> I mean like there are these people who you're like I work really hard at like moving imaginary money from one account to another account right <laughs> like that's working really hard that's just like you're in the office for a long time like manipulating yeah. global currencies <laughs> like, that's different than like someone who works really hard every day with preschoolers or you know is uh, someone who like cares for elders all day or even someone who just works at the grocery store. Like that person works really hard. And we don't think of it as like, like no one's like, oh, you didn't work hard enough. So that's why you, you know, are still like working class. I don't, what, what I'm trying to point to is like, there is this, still there's this myth of meritocracy that you're pointing out to that like, I am where I am because I worked hard and I deserve it. But what that elides is that there are all sorts of people who work really, really hard and somehow they didn't get what you got, right? <laughs> and what actually leads people to success is a mix of hard work it's like the tiniest part of it, I think. <laughs> Hard work, where you were born into society, your race, your class, your ability level, like all of these different things, which it's actually kind of a shit show. Like it's just, it's like, who kn you were there because of chance and you could be cut out of that situation by chance as well. And so the only thing that we can do to try to like make society better is to try to be, instead of like, believing in this false myth that like, oh, if you just work hard, then things will work out for you. It's wrong, right? We have to have systems in place that make it so that everyone can work hard and still feel comfortable, can work hard and like still feel like their life isn't going to fall apart at, at a moment's notice. I mean, that I think brings up a really great way to end everything we've been talking about, which is um, I'd really love to hear from you what you think is one way that um, millennials or really kind of anyone listening could do to improve their relationship with their work. What's a kind of practical thing that, that you know, yes, the systems are broken and we do need to see this kind of macro level change, but what can we do for us sort of sitting at home listening um, at least to kind of change our mindsets a bit? There's two things. One is I think, as I was talking about at the very beginning, is like really seeing your work habits for what they are and identifying like the moments when you're feeling that shame or you're feeling that exhaustion and kind of leaning into what your body tells you to do, right? So when your body is like, I, I really don't want to be here. I want to be anywhere else but here. Like instead of settling for that halfway of like scrolling Instagram on your phone, like actually go out and take a little walk around if you can, given where you are right now in the pandemic um, or stare at the window, right? Like these things that are, that seem very useless or wasteful or unproductive in some way, I think um, leaning into them and embracing them and like, just like the weird curiosity of like hanging out with your own mind for a little bit can be so generative and so restful. The other thing is giving yourself permission to just not do things that everyone else is doing. So one of the big revelations of my recent life, like since all of the burnout stuff has happened, is I've basically stopped listening to podcasts. 
Like I, I love podcasts. I love them, but I have two that I listen to now that are like my favorites and all the other ones. When people are like, have you listened to this new podcast? And it's always like some true crime podcast or something like that. And I'm like, actually, I'm trying to listen to fewer podcasts. And I think other people have a really different relationship with podcasts and like really find them to be so wonderful and, and, um, a place of solace. But for me, I was finding them as like, I was treating them as ways to edify myself as like the Ted talk that I felt like I had to watch on YouTube. Right. And I was filling my mind with them in all of these kind of interstitials of my life where otherwise my mind could have been free to wander. You know, there, um, there's a, a definition of solitude, which is freedom from other people's minds. So you don't have to be actually by yourself. It's just that you're not interacting with someone else's mind in that moment. And that to me was revelatory. Like, oh, I can just cut the vegetables for dinner and not be listening to public radio at the same time. (laughs) You know, I can just have that freedom from it. But I do find that people are often surprised when you say very, you know, explicitly, like, I'm actually trying to cut down on the number of things I'm consuming and the number of things that I'm doing. And I think that, you know, maybe this is one of those places post pandemic where people can be a little bit more honest with themselves about like, I'm actually going to try to not travel for a while, or I'm going to try to like, instead of saying, I'm going to read a hundred books this year and I'm going to catalog every one of them and put them on Instagram be like, I'm going to tell myself that I don't have to read any books right now. And I'm going to find something else that I actually really want to do. So maybe just a little bit more freedom from compulsion to do the things that we think as millennial citizens and laborers that we have to do all the time. That is such a lovely note to end on. And that sounds like (laughs) brilliant advice. And I think now more than ever, people really need to take heed of that. Um, Tell us where people can find you for more of your brilliant work, which is going to help a lot of people. Uh, I'm at BuzzFeed News. You can just Google my name, Anne Helen Peterson, and BuzzFeed News, and you can find my recent work. I'm always talking about something on Twitter or my dogs on Instagram. I take lots of pictures of my dogs. So, Brilliant. Thank you so much for being on the show. This was really great. It was actually very, um, it was sort of a classic thera- work therapy session, I would say. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you so much for making it work with your t- guys' time zone. It's, it's morning here in mountain time zone. So I'm going <laughs> to enjoy the rest of the day. Brilliant. Well, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Moo for sponsoring Is This Working? Whether you're a big business or a freelance creative or even just for fun, Moo is the place to go to easily design and print quality postcards, stickers and business cards. Now is a great time for design and printing so that you can hit the ground running when you get back out into the world. Lots of people will also be using this time to finally kickstart their creative careers. We've got 20% off at Moo for listeners of Is This Working? Simply enter the code ISTHISWORKING at the moo.com website for 20% off your order. We'll also add that code into the show notes.